in here. So if you've got your Bibles, as Jeff mentioned, we're starting God's all-encompassing reach today. And you're going to see that word reach in all kinds of ways in the days ahead. So let's turn to Colossians chapter 1 as we stand and we consider the idea of the fact that God reached down. That's where it all started, at least as far as we're concerned, uh, that he would initiate a relationship with us by reaching down. So if you found your place there, Colossians chapter 1, one of the great Christological hymns in the New Testament, beginning with verse 15, where he says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, because by him everything was created in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. John would say, nothing that is created, no creature was created. Nothing that was created was created apart from him. That means God is separate from his creation. Jesus is God and therefore separate from his creation and involved in creating all things. So don't let a Muslim or don't let a Jehovah's Witness, for that matter, try to tell you that Jesus was a created being. He is eternally God with the Father as the Son, so is the Holy Spirit. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place or preeminence in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And Father, we thank you for this great hymn recorded by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to have even today to be reminded that our God reached down through his son Jesus Christ to touch this world and to be touched by this world. Lord, help us to understand how to communicate that with others as well as embrace it for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. August 5th of 2010, an explosion took place in Chile, and 33 Chilean miners in a copper mine were trapped some 2,300 feet below ground. That's about four uh, times as deep as Stone Mountain, Georgia, is high. It it was um, 2,300 feet below ground about three miles or five kilometers from the entrance into the mine, they were trapped. And so the world began to turn their attention toward this South American nation. The Chilean government, along with three drilling teams, began to exhaust every resource possible to save these 33 men. The United States got involved, NASA was employed in the process, a dozen corporations, along with the government entities that were involved, would eventually invest some $20 million to rescue these 33 miners. Why? Because you can't put a price on life. $20 million invested to rescue these 33 Miners. And on October the 13th, many of us watched live on Fox News or CNN or some other television station 
as one at a time, because the engineers had worked together and after drilling to this place, they had devised this capsule, they had created this capsule that they could pull them out, not all 33 at one time, they got them out of there one at a time. So the world was able to watch one at a time as every one of these miners were rescued. It was an amazing thing. And we think, you know, you can't complain about the price that was put on saving these lives because we value life. Well, as a church, do we value life? Do we sometimes complain about the effort and the energy that we would spend on seeing people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do, do we complain about the money that might be spent? As Indeed, today, there are more churches sitting on money in bank accounts everywhere that they're not investing into the kingdom to see somebody come to know, love, and serve Jesus Christ. And it's worth every penny, every effort of energy that we can exert to see people come to know Jesus, whatever it takes, to see them saved. And most of the time, like in this mine, we'll see them come to know the Lord one soul at a time. And so we're going to be encouraging you, who's your one? Reach one. Focus on that one person because we can be overwhelmed by thinking about lostness in this world. And when you consider God's all-encompassing reach, I want you to realize he would have reached down if it had only been for you. And so we need to have a heart like his and want to reach one for him. And you reach that one, you want to reach one more. God's all-encompassing reach. I think of in Psalm 139 when the psalmist is saying, where can I go that you're not there? No matter how deep I go, no matter how far I go, Lord Jesus, anywhere I try to go from your presence, you are there. God's all-encompassing reach. He will come wherever we are. And as we examine the gospel through Easter and and, and through the week after Easter, we're going to see how God reached down, which is our focus today. And when he came down, we'll, we'll see how he reached out next week. We're going to look specifically how he reached into the hearts of men on Palm Sunday. And then on Easter, how he reached up and through the resurrection, taking hold of heaven and taking hold of man who he came to redeem, reconciled us with the Father when we put our faith and trust in him. And then we'll take a week to talk about the fact that he he also kind of reached back, didn't he? Or he's going to. One day he's going to reach back and snatch us out of this place. Quite literally, the Bible says that we will be caught up. The Greek means to be snatched out of this place. So God's all-encompassing reach will emphasize and that will carry us through these next few weeks. Hopefully, it will help us to build some habits because God reached to where we are now as the church. We're to be his hands and feet taking the message that reached us to others, and reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit-filled church is now the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ in this world. He reached us, and now he's reaching through us. So today we're going to focus on reaching down as we look at Colossians 1 and a number of other passages, and we'll realize that had God not come down, there would be no reaching out or Uh, There would be no reaching in or reaching up. There would be no Easter if there had not been a Christmas. If the Word had not been made flesh to dwell among us, He could have never died for us on Calvary's cross and could not have risen again on the third day had He not reached down to start with to come 
to where we are. And so when we look at Colossians 1.15, we're going to begin by pointing out some things about the incarnation of Christ, the fact that God reached down to us. The first thing I want you to see in the text this morning is Jesus reached down to reveal the Father. Jesus reached down to show us who God is. The atheist is saying there is no God, but when push to prove that, they usually revert to some form of agnosticism when they would say, well, even if there is, there's no way that we could know him. And the Christian can say, oh, but you don't understand. We can know him because he makes himself known to us because he reached down to where we are. It says in verse 15, he is the image of, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Hebrews would say he's the exact likeness of the Father. All that is in the Father was in the Son. He's preeminent there, firstborn. doesn't mean he had a created day. It means that that word firstborn has to do with preeminence. He is over all. He is authoritative over all of creation because by him everything was created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. It's speaking of Jesus, and it's saying, by Jesus, all things that were created are created. So everything that the Father is, the Son was also in the Father creating this world. All things have been created or made through him and for him. We're, we're placed here for his glory, for his pleasure, and to enjoy him and bring him glory. And then in verse 19, it says, For God was pleased, speaking of God the Father, to have all of his fullness dwell in him, speaking of God the Son. That everything that God is was dwelling in Jesus, although Jesus laid aside certain rights for the sake of reconciliation. You read about that in Philippians chapter 2. Attributes that we could not have beheld with our own eyes. Remember, Philip's asking the question in in John chapter 14, when are you going to show us the Father? Man, we want to see him. Jesus had already said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father by me. Oh, you're going to show us the Father. He says in 14.9, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say Show us the Father. That's what I'm doing, Philip. Don't you understand? I came to show the Father. And so when you see me, you see the Father. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus had already said, the Father and I are one. Literally, he's saying in that that passage, the Father and I, we are one. We, plural, in personhood are one one in substance and entity, and we can't get our mind completely around the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, but all that God is, the Son is for us. And John is saying when he reached down, we experienced him. Later on, he would say in his first epistle, if you want to flip over to John, First uh, John chapter 1 in his first epistle, he's, he's saying, we want you to understand something. Jesus was God with us, and he was very, very real. He said, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you that eternal life, the eternal life that was with the Father, was revealed to us. 
What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He's saying, don't you understand? We walked with him and we talked with him. We touched him. John could say, I remember lounging by the campfire and I'm resting my head on his chest as a pillow by the campfire. We we experience the reality of God in his son, Jesus Christ. God is real because Jesus is real, and Jesus is real. We touched him. We experienced him. When somebody's experienced the touch of Jesus, they'll never deny the reality of God. I think of that old song, he touched me. Oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. And John had experienced the touch of Jesus Christ in his life, and he said, let me tell you, he's real. He has reached down to reveal the Father to us. And and we may not have recognized him. Sometimes it seems like God becoming man is like like an episode of that uh, British program that the United States copied that we're good at stealing those programs, right? um, Undercover boss. And so, you know, in that show, the, the, the boss, or sometimes the owner of a major corporation, will dress up like an entry-level employee and hang out with those entry-level employees, and they don't realize that the boss is hanging out with them. And somehow God Almighty as Son clothed himself in humanity, and many didn't realize that the boss, that, that the Creator, that the Lord was on the scene, but he was there, and he was very real, and he wasn't trying to keep it a huge secret in the end. That's how we can go from singing hymns like immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, to singing hymns like to God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. The incarnation of God, the putting on of flesh, ultimately leading to his death would be referred to as the humiliation of Christ. Why would God the son become a man? because he's a reaching down kind of God who wanted to reveal all that the Father is to us so that we could have a relationship with him. That's why we must humble ourselves. If God is a God who would leave heaven for you and for me, who are we to stay at our comfortable churches and in our comfortable homes and not try to reach the people in our community and our schools and our workplace people on our ball teams, we should be asking the question, if God humbled himself to reach down, why would I ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? If God would put on humanity to reach down to us, to reveal the Father, how can we withhold the unsearchable riches of Christ from those we interact with because they might make fun of us, they might look down on us, we might be humiliated in their sight? Jesus humbled himself for us, and reached down to reveal the Father. Secondly, I want you to see this morning that Jesus reached down to touch lives and feel with compassion. He reached down to touch lives and feel with compassion. Now, in Colossians, it's hard for us to understand that because in verse 17, he says, he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. And so we're picturing the universe here, and we're saying he's the one that created this earth, and he's the one that keeps it on its axis, and he's the one that set the earth 93 million miles from the sun so that if it had been any further, we would have frozen. If it had been any closer, we would have been consumed with fire. But 
He put it at just the right place, and he holds the earth on its axis until he's done with it. It will remain there. And so we don't have to worry about, oh, goodness, are we bringing on the apocalypse? Is global warming going to do the planet in? The planet will last as long as God wants it to last until he's finished with it. And, And so you have him holding this in place, but here's what we miss is that the God who's holding the universe in place is the one who's holding you together. He's the one who put you together. When you start looking up at what the human body is made up of, it's a miracle that we're held together at all physically. But sometimes it's emotionally and spiritually that we feel like we're falling apart. And that's when we know that our God came down in the person of Jesus Christ to say, I've got you. I'm holding on to you. And he began to feel what we feel and and, and comprehend it from a human perspective because he was the God-man, fully God but fully man at the same time. In Matthew chapter 9, 35 and 36, we see a little bit of his compassion when it says, Jesus went out into all the towns and the villages. He was teaching in their synagogues, synagogues. He was preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. He was out doing what he was sent to do. He was touching lives. He was ministering to people. He was caring for people. He was healing people. He was telling them how they could have a relationship with the Father through the Son. And in the midst of preaching the good news, look what happens because we want this to happen first. It says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. I often pray, and I'm sure you do as well, In fact, I will hit this altar and pray, and many of you will join me from time to time. God, give us a compassion for people. Help us have the compassion that Jesus would have for people. But I want you to keep something in mind. In this particular text, Jesus was obedient to go touch people, and after he had been doing what the Father sent him to do, it says, then he felt compassion. If you want greater compassion for people who don't know Jesus Christ, Start being obedient to share him with them. Because when you get a heart to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will have a greater compassion for the people that you're trying to reach. It will break your heart when they reject Christ. And that broken heart will give you greater compassion than you've ever known. So don't wait on the compassion. Don't wait on the feelings. Listen, I don't know about some of you, but with me, my feelings are often way behind God's truth. I need to be obedient to God's truth first, and and sometimes the feelings come, and sometimes they don't. But I don't live my life on feelings. I live my life on the fact of God's Word. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested, how? In every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at our proper time or at the proper time or in our time of need. He's saying, listen, Jesus is now our high priest. You don't have to go to some confessional somewhere and talk to a priest who can't understand how you feel. Sometimes as a pastor, it's so tough for me. I'm sure Pastor Ben would say the same thing. Somebody might be going through a situation that I haven't been through. And I want so bad to be able to say, I know how you feel. I've been there. And there are occasions that life's experience has allowed us to have been there. But so often we can't say that. At least we haven't been there in the shoes of that particular person. 
But I can always say with confidence because of what Jesus went through on the cross, he knows how you feel. Jesus knows what you're feeling. He has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And there's nothing that you can experience in life that brings a deeper brokenness than what he experienced when he was rejected by men and crucified on a cross. He knows how you feel. Isaiah 53, which prophesies concerning the cross, says that he was a man of suffering or a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief or one who knew sickness. He knew what we were feeling in our most desperate moments, both physically, spiritually, and emotionally, and in every way. And he made himself vulnerable when he didn't have to, but because of his great love for us, he made himself vulnerable to feel what we would feel. That's a coming down kind of God. That's a God who reaches down to where we are. I remember hearing a pastor from Georgia when I was serving as a youth minister in North Carolina. We had a a homecoming pastor uh, who had come in from Georgia because he had pastored that church when he was in seminary years ago. And and he told the story, I never forgot this, he, he talked about growing up on a farm in Georgia, and he said that when he was growing up that there was a stray cat that came onto the farm, a, a kind of a, just, just barely past the kitten stage. And it was in bad shape and hadn't eaten and looked diseased and all. He said, so I began to take care of that cat. And he said, my mom would say, leave that cat alone before you catch something. And he said, sure enough, I caught something. He said, I nursed that cat back to health. He said, but I ended up with some bad cases of ringworm. He said, because that cat had been infested. He said, I ended up with bad cases of ringworm. Made himself vulnerable. Jesus became like one of us. Took on our sickness. Took on our brokenness. Even though he knew no sin, our sin was laid upon him on Calvary's cross so he could feel what we could feel to the nth degree. If we would do something for, a, for an animal, I'm not, saying it's, I'm not saying it's wrong to nurse an animal back to health. That's a good thing, you know. They're God's creatures too, right? But if we would do something like that for an animal, why do we look at certain people and say, I don't know if I want to get close to them. I might get something. I don't know if I want my kids hanging out with them. They might catch something. Well, we've got to be careful not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers and be influenced into sin. We still have to see people as people for whom Christ died and people with whom we need a connection for the sake of the gospel. We struggle knowing how people feel, but we can point them to the one who knows whatever they're going through. Because here's what I've discovered. You start praying for somebody, you start saying, this is my one that I'm trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will let them go through something where they need to experience his presence and his compassion, and they need to know that God knows how they feel. And you've discovered that, and you can share that. I always think when somebody's going through a crisis like this of Jeremy Camp's song, He Knows. Have you heard that? It says, all the bitter, weary ways, endless striving day by day, you barely have the strength to pray in the valley low. And how hard your fight has been, how deep the pain within, wounds that no one else has seen, hurts too much to show. All the doubt you're standing in between, 
and all the weight that brings you to your knees, he knows. He knows. Every hurt and every sting, he has walked the suffering. He knows, he knows. Let your burdens come undone. Lift your eyes up to the one who knows. He knows. Jesus reached down to fill with compassion and know what we know when it comes to suffering. Third, this morning, I want you to see that Jesus reaches down to redeem. There's a purpose. Now, we're going to spend a lot more time on this in a couple of weeks and on Easter Sunday. So you want to be here and you want to bring friends and family with you every Sunday, but especially these Sundays. But look at verse 20. We we can't stay away from the subject of redemption any given Sunday. But in verse 20 it says, And through him, speaking of Jesus again, to reconcile everything to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross. Well, pastor, in this modern day, and listen, I'm all about being as contemporary and relevant as possible, but that never means compromise the truth of God's word. That never means stop talking about the blood of Jesus Christ, whether it's popular or not. Because it's only through the blood of his cross that he can reconcile us with the Father. It's only the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin and makes us clean before the Father. He says to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. He came to redeem us. Galatians, Paul writes it this way to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, when the time came to completion, or in some translations, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as son. I've heard of people going to other nations to adopt special needs children, and I admire that so much. God came to another realm through his son Jesus to adopt us, to redeem us, to bring us into a relationship with his heavenly father. When he got here, he did something. He didn't just say, we could stop after the first couple of points and said, man, he came, he experienced, he knows how we feel, and he said, okay, so long, see you later. No, he came to do something about it. Could you imagine if if you had been in an awful car accident and, and The EMS shows up, fire trucks, ambulances, police cars, they're all there, and you're trapped under a vehicle, and they look under there and say, well, how you doing? Not too good. Well, cool, we're going to keep you company for a little while, and we want you to look at us so you can see what it is like to be healthy and desire that. And and after we fellowship and talk a little while, we'll see you later. (laughs) You would say, what? You're not going to get me out of here? I mean, what do we pay taxes for anyway? Of course they're going to get you out of here because they're wonderful people that are doing that job and they're going to rescue you and they're going to get you out of that situation. But so many times as a church, we're like, well, I'm witnessing by example. I'm going to show them how to live a good, godly Christian life. And they desperately need, even if they fight it at times. By the way, when you're rescuing somebody in danger, it could even be a drowning victim. Sometimes they'll fight you not knowing what they're doing. But spiritually speaking, we'll say, I'm going to live a good example because if I actually try to reach them with the gospel, if I bring it to a point of confrontation, what if they reject me? What if they fight me? What if they don't like what I have to say? How many times, Pastor Ben, do you hear parents say, oh, but I don't want to push them? 
You're like, well, they're not bringing their kids to church anymore. Oh, I don't, I don't want to push them. They push them to school, but not to where they have to hear the Word of God. Got real quiet in here. Jesus was more than a revealer. He was a redeemer. Don't just be a good example. Reach one. Take hold of one. Save one. I know it's God who saves, but Paul said, I became all things for all people that by all means I might save some. He was saying, God can use me as his life raft. He can use me as an instrument to reach people with the gospel of Jesus. Invite somebody this Easter. Yes, those believers who need a church to go to, but those who also have not heard the gospel. And then finally, number four, Jesus reaches down to feel, now it's not F-E-E-L with compassion so much as F-I-L-L, to feel with his spirit. To feel, to deal with, to, to empower, to seal us with his Holy Spirit. Because when we look at verse 18, back in Colossians chapter 1, we see that he's the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And we're asking the question, okay, Jesus, then why did you go back to the Father? You're the head of the church. You're empowering the church. You're doing your mission in and through the life of the church. So Jesus, where are you? Remember his promises that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to do that work. So he has reached down by becoming flesh and dwelling among us, but now he is reaching down today to fill, seal, and empower us with his Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14 and verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. The word another there in the Greek means another of the same kind. Uh, an exact replica, if you will. He says, I'm going to send you another of the same kind. I'm going to be here, but in a different way than you've ever known me because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is not something like the force in Star Wars where we say, well, may the force be with you. And by the way, there's an entire religious movement out there that's really popular these days that see the Holy Spirit as more of an impersonal force that we can manipulate rather than the person of God who should control us. I won't call any names like T.D. Jakes or anything like that, but it's a growing movement, and you need to be careful. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Just as Jesus was God in the flesh, the Holy Spirit is Almighty God in spirit. Jesus said, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. In John 16 and verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. In Acts 1.8, as Jesus is getting ready to ascend and leave this planet after his death and his burial and his resurrection, he's given this promise before he ascends. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. See, that, that, that power wasn't just so we could experience dynamic worship services, even though I'm glad that's a part of it. That power was to live within us so that we could be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. That's like saying to the church today, so that you can be witnesses in Madison County, all of Georgia, even other states in the United States, and other nations, the uttermost parts of the world. How can I do that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in me, Christ in me, 
the hope of glory. So what happened in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit came upon the church, and they were empowered. People from all over the world was actually in Jerusalem. And so the gospel went to all nations immediately in fulfillment of this promise. And it's still going to all nations through those who are yielded to the Spirit today. And Romans 8, 9 says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if you're a Christian, the way Jesus regenerated you is he placed his Spirit inside of you. But Ephesians 5, 18 tells us that that we're to continually be filled with the Spirit. So just because you're sitting here this morning saved and on your way to heaven and the Spirit is living inside of you does not mean necessarily that you are choosing to walk in the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit because that is something that is continual. Keep on being filled with the Spirit so that we become like a channel through which the Holy Spirit flows into this world. Now my son, Kent, who's, like I mentioned, is preaching this morning. After the message, after the service, he'll have his mind on something else. And if you know him well, you'll know what his mind is on. If you've ever especially some of his friends who might have seen his room before, been around, you know, his room's full of die-cast cars. He's got more die-cast NASCAR, stock cars, race cars than I could count. I mean, they're everywhere. He is a huge NASCAR fan. So I'm sure he'll fill me in on how the service went, and then he's going to tell me where Chase Elliott is starting in the race today. And if he happens to have a die-cast replica of Chase Elliott's car, he'll say, remember, I've got that paint scheme. Now, those cars are cool to look at, but they're die-cast. They're inanimate. They're not going anywhere. Those in his room, that is. They're just a small replica of the, the real thing. But even those that are on the track today, for those of you who are into racing, if there was no motor, no driver, you'd be in trouble, right? And the crew chief giving some instructions on where they need to go, how they need to move. The power. The direction, the strategy is all in the one who will get into the car and the engine that will be placed in there. And and not only is the Holy Spirit the power that lives in us, he's the person who drives us. He's the one who guides us. God reached down so that he might fill us with his spirit so that we might be victoriously touching lives for him in this world. So why would we choose to walk in the flesh when we can have a sense of an awareness of his presence and his power in our lives? See, the Bible says we're clay pots or jars of clay. On our own, we're like those die-cast cars. They're not going anywhere. We might clean up the outside. We might be worried what we look like, but God did not create you and he did not create me to put us in a display case 
to be shown off for the world. He created us to get our hands dirty because we're filled with this spirit. Nothing is more fun for those drivers, and I've heard enough post-race interviews to know this. Sometimes Kent has memorized those post-race interviews and shared them with me. But to know that those drivers love to finish a race with a lot of bangs and dents and scuffs and scratches and rubber and everything else all over the car. I didn't know that it was a hard race, but they finished strong. And as Christians, we get all worried about what we look on the outside to everybody else. I want to finish the race knowing that it was more about the power of the one who lives in me than how I looked outwardly or how I impressed anybody else, but that Jesus would use me and that he would use you to touch people with the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?